Praise God. Beloved, we are in our third and final week this week of looking at the death, uh, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. Uh, this is our third week in this text, and it will be the third and final time that I ask you to stand and read it all together. Uh, Mark 15. Verses 16 through 47. So if you have your Bibles, please turn and open uh, to that passage. When you found it, go ahead and stand, and we will read this entire account together. At the end of that reading, I'll say, This is the word of the Lord. We can respond in true praise by saying, Thanks be to God. And then we will, as we have over the last couple of weeks, take just a moment to pause and um, consider uh, what we've just read. Amen? Mark chapter 15, verses uh, 16 through 47. Let's begin. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, 
Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's a long passage. It's a heavy passage. Part of my prayer for us as a body as we've read through it in its entirety over the last three weeks is merely by the repetition that the events of that day and what our Savior has done for us would begin to be cemented not only in our minds but in our hearts. Um, I think it's no mistake that when Paul writes to the Galatians asking who bewitched them as they began to consider uh, works of the law uh, to be necessary for their justification before God instead of merely the grace of God that was extended to them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says to them, was it not before you that I preached Christ. And basically he says in such a way that it was as if He had been crucified before your very eyes. Which means that the things that took place in Jesus' death and His crucifixion, His death and His burial, ultimately His resurrection, were things that the church was busy rehearsing together. Things that they were... uh, looking back upon constantly to mine uh, this incredible act of God for all of its many treasures and blessings for them in their lives. I think it's good for us to take time to look upon the person, the work, the suffering, the passion, ultimately the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus for us. 
Uh, We often uh, speak of this quote from Martin Luther in terms of the nativity uh, when he says, who cares if you have heard a thousand times that Christ was born if you do not learn and hear and believe that He was born for you. The same applies here. Who cares if we have heard a thousand times that Jesus died on a cross if we have not heard and received and also believed the great news that He died for us and in our place. For it is by His death that we are saved from our sin is by His resurrection that we have been justified before God. And that is what we are eager to get to next week as we look at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But here today, we're in our third week looking at the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. And as I've said each week, in Mark's Gospel, it has all come to this. Everything that Mark was doing in showing us the work of Jesus in His ministry on the earth and His interactions with uh, everyone from every scope of life. We have seen Him with the beggars and with the sick. We have seen Him with the rulers and with the council members, with the rich and with the poor. We have seen Him even here in this account with special attention given to the women Uh, followers of Jesus who followed so closely. Even when the men seem to be uh, nowhere to be found, they are present still following after Jesus. We've seen Jesus in all of His work, but everything and every interaction, everything that He did was building uh, to this moment. To these truths that we confess together each week in the Creed that we believe that Jesus was crucified dead, and buried. These central tenets of our faith hang on these three words, for although Jesus' crucifixion, His death, and His burial were not the end of His story, they were the vicarious means God supplied for our atonement. That we would be brought into, back into oneness, at-one-ment, atonement, oneness with God, through the sacrifice of Jesus. Without the cross, without His death, without His burial, we are lost. But because of them, we have been granted new life through faith in Him. You see, because God is of eternal and infinite worth, there is no value that we can place on the holiness of God. You could keep on counting, keep up, keep on adding worth upon worth and value upon value, and it is a straight line with no beginning and no end. You could, this is why the angels can stand before the throne of God and cry out, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty and never run out of holiness to attribute to Him for all of eternity. His value is so great 
that you could keep trying to add it up for the rest of time and never come to an end where you could draw a line finally, add the plus sign, and get a sum total of the value and worth of our infinite and eternal God. When we were kids and we were playing games and we were trying to win something that was unwinnable, we might uh, at the end say that we, we get it times infinity. Right? Did you ever say that to somebody? And what were you trying to do? Like, you can't get above that. Even as children. Though we could not in our finite minds even begin to grasp what infinity really meant, we knew that it was so much that you could never surmount it. Especially when you're playing the, the jinx game, trying to get someone to be quiet. You know, you say the same thing at the same time. Jinx! You know, padlock, times infinity, you can never, you know, whatever. Somehow we all made it out of that game. I don't, I don't know. But because God is of eternal, infinite, and inestimable worth, When Adam and we through Adam and then by our own volition broke God's law, we transgressed His eternal, infinite, and inestimable holiness. And because He is of eternal, infinite, and inestimable worth, our sin has an eternal, infinite, and inestimable cost. Which is why not one of us could be found worthy to offer a sacrifice because our lives do have a sum total. You can draw a line under us and put an addition sign and come up with some kind of value in human terms. Only one with eternal, infinite, and inestimable value themselves could offer an eternal and infinitely acceptable atoning sacrifice for sin. Beloved, Jesus is that one. He is the one of eternal, infinite, and inestimable value such that when He offered His life, the payment that He gave as the holiness of God itself, there will never be a line that you can draw under it and put an addition sign and come up with a sum total. Jesus is the One. His value is infinite. Therefore, His suffering, His death, His burial for us and in our place has past, present, and ongoing eternal effect. Praise God. What a Savior. Amen? This is why it is so important for us each week in the Apostles' Creed to remind ourselves and one another that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried for us and in our place. Two weeks ago, we looked and talked about the shame, curse, and centrality of the cross 
and the crucifixion of our Lord for us and in our place. Last week, we considered the death of our Lord. That the death of Christ was necessary, it was substitutionary, and it was effectual. Today, we're going to look at His burial. I don't have three cute words uh, to go along with it this time. But we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at Jesus' burial as the bona fides of His death. The the testimony, the certification, the, the validation, the bona fides of His death. We're going to look at His burial as the transition point between Christ's humiliation and His exaltation. And we're going to look at His burial as Jesus' own complete submission to the Father for us and in our place. I'd like to direct our attention back to the text, to uh, the last part of our text, to verses 42 through 47. It says, When evening had come since it was the day of preparation. This is Friday. This is Good Friday. And the Sabbath, though we know the Sabbath is Saturday, the Sabbath is from sundown to sundown, which means that the Sabbath actually begins in the 24-hour period that we call Friday in the evening at sundown. And it extends until sundown on Saturday. Why? Well, from the very beginning of time in the creative order in the Genesis account. If you go back and you look at it, you'll find an interesting thing that when God records for us the creation of the world, He says that evening and morning were the first day. And evening and morning were the second day. And evening and morning were the third day. And so on. And so from that great tradition began by God in the Genesis account, the Jewish people have counted their days not by morning and evening, but by evening and morning. From sundown to sundown. And so, when we say that it's the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, it's Good Friday. And if Jesus is going to be buried in accordance with the uh, Jewish and Talmudic law, then He has to be buried before sundown. And so, before sundown, even Jesus is already dead. And it says here in verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. He found boldness. This is interesting because where was Joseph on the night of the trial? Where was he when the Sanhedrin were gathered together? If he's one of the council members, where was this boldness at that time? Now, we don't have enough information to say that it wasn't present at all, merely that it's not recorded. It's a witness from silence. It's a testimony from silence. But here, specifically, the word that is given by Mark is that he took courage. This seems to mean that there was a a movement that happened within him that wasn't present before, but now is present that he took courage. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, we hear, is surprised 
to hear that Jesus should have already died. And so he summons the centurion, which means the centurion that Mark has already testified, this Roman citizen, as he writes this gospel to Roman Christians who are being persecuted at this time. And they see the witness of this Roman centurion that truly this man was the Son of God. It's this man who seems to have some sort of authority over the goings-on on this day and over the crucifixions that were being carried out. And he comes and he gives uh, witness. He, gives test- he testifies to the fact in a legal sense before the Roman prefect that Jesus was in fact dead. And it says that Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud. Uh, We find in John's Gospel, this is something that he has purchased for this moment. And taking him down and wrapped him in the linen shroud. John also records for us that Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, was also with Joseph on this day and had purchased over 75 pounds worth of spices and ointment. And together, they prepared the body of Jesus. It says they wrapped Him in the linen shroud, laid Him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Now, I don't know if anyone here has had to do any work with construction, uh, but even today, as it was then, to cut anything out of rock is incredibly expensive. Um, and so here, there is a testimony to the affluence of Joseph that he would have already had prepared a tomb cut out of the rock at great expense. And then they rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph also saw where he was laid and there Actions based on that information will become clear next week. All four Gospels agree. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, as well as John. All four agree. Jesus died. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He died. And then He was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. John, as I said, alone records that Nicodemus, who is revealed in John 3 as likewise being a secret follower of Jesus to some degree, comes forward and together, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin council, and Nicodemus, a ruler and Pharisee, come forward and are publicly identified with Christ in His death by participating in His burial. The record of Jesus' burial after death testifies to us the fact that He really died. He did not merely swoon or pass out. He was not merely mistaken for being dead. Jesus died. His death was witnessed and then legally testified to by the Roman 
centurion before the Roman prefect. And his body was not merely disposed of, but here in this moment we find that Jesus' body was granted honor in burial. I would direct your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 40 and 41. Question 40 asks the catechumens the question, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? The answer, because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Question 41 simply asks, why was He buried? And the answer is very simple, to show thereby that He was really dead. This testimony to the actual death of the Savior is important because it pertains to the curse of God on sin and the satisfaction of His holy and righteous wrath. If there were any doubt, beloved, that Jesus really died, there could be doubt as to whether or not the Father's wrath towards sin had actually been satisfied by Christ. As we saw last week, death is the sentence pronounced on sinners. From the curse of God in Genesis to Romans 6.23 that we looked at last week, for the wages of sin is what? Death. And therefore, death is required for atonement. A blood sacrifice, not in terms of drops or pints or liters, It would not have been enough for Jesus to cut Himself and squeeze out the drops, you know, like you do when you go to get your hemoglobin test and they prick your finger and then squeeze it out on five little spots on a piece of paper. Would not have been enough. But don't we sing, oh, the blood of Jesus. The wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus. Don't we sing that? Yes, we do. The point was in the life of the blood. The Old Testament says that life is in the blood. And therefore, the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, was not one merely of presenting blood, but of the giving of life in the draining of the life blood. For life is in the blood. And as the preacher in Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. You see, if Jesus had merely swooned or fainted, His heart merely slowed instead of stopped, if He had lived and not died, we would have no assurance that the demands of God's law were met in Christ and we would have, hear me, no cause whatsoever for trusting that we are safe. No foundation for believing that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And no reason to sing something like we sang this morning that it is well with our soul because there would be no peace with the Father. The account of Jesus' burial in today's passage then is more than just a record 
of historical fact. It becomes for us a grounds for our confidence in Christ. Christ's burial proved that He had truly died and that He had, in fact, endured the curse of sin for His people. It is, as I said earlier, His bona fides as the sacrificial lamb for the atonement of God's people. As Jesus stretched out His arms and as we see in the other Gospel accounts, and He says what? To Telestai. An old accounting term. The very thing that if you owed a debt and you came with payment for that debt and that person would give you a receipt and marked across the receipt, it would say, to Telestai. In other words, paid in full. Jesus' death is the payment in full for our sins. His burial shows us that He really did offer the payment that was required. And as we will see next week, His resurrection is the return of that receipt from God Himself saying that in fact, Jesus' sacrifice was counted and there is therefore now no more blood required. That's why we sing, Oh, the blood of Jesus. The accounts of Jesus' burial also have value for defending our faith. And so not only is it the bona fides for Jesus' own death, it's the bona fides for our faith. Hence, fides. Muslims have adopted a kind of docetic heresy concerning Jesus. They believe that Jesus never died on the cross but was taken up to heaven before and that Simon the Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross was mistakenly crucified in His place. This is just total nonsense. Um, and it's for therefore no accident that as Mark records the fact that Simon the Cyrene uh, who was coming in from the country who picks up Jesus' cross to carry it. What does he say? Who is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does Mark say is the father of Alexander and Rufus? For the same reason that when Paul writes to the Roman Christians in his letter called Romans, uh, spoiler alert, that's where it was going, that he says to greet Rufus. Who is this Rufus? It's the same Rufus that Mark is referring to here. And the reason that he does it is because the letter he's writing to the Roman persecuted Christians, they know Rufus. And they can go to Rufus and they can say, Rufus, is this true? Your father carried his cross. And if, in fact, his father had been crucified instead of Jesus, Rufus would have been the first one to say, and they crucified my dad instead, wouldn't you know? It's why I'm not just being, I'm not trying to be ugly when I say this is utter nonsense. It's just, it is obviously not the case that Simon was crucified in the place of Jesus. If that was the fact, then the apostles would have done everything they could not to draw attention to Rufus at all. It would have been the weak link. And would have had to have been taken care of. Instead, 
They point to Rufus. Why? Because he himself could give witness to the veracity of the statements made by the evangelists in the Gospels. Not only that, some of the members of what is called the Jesus Seminar, um, if you remember from some decades ago, um, sounds like a great thing. Why don't we all go to the Jesus Seminar? Please don't. It's terrible, heretical garbage. But this, some members of the Jesus Seminar teach that scavenging dogs ate Jesus' corpse. But these positions are completely groundless. It's interesting that they would say that because it was, in fact, Jezebel who was thrown from a window whose corpse was eaten by dogs to show the derision that she had incurred from God Himself that her body would not be honored by burial. You see, the Gospels are reliable literary sources written closest to the time after Jesus' ministry was completed. There are what are so-called pseudo-Gospels that have been written uh, under the names of some of the other disciples, like the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, these accounts are not reliable. They've been proven not to have been written at the same time as the other Gospels. And they contain all sorts of garbage that have nothing to do with the Gospel message. But the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being four of the most uh, closely and critically examined documents of all time have been proven to be the closest written accounts to the time after Jesus' ministry was completed. And the four Gospels all agree that Jesus really died and that Joseph of Arimathea buried the body of Jesus. Once it was clear that Jesus was dead, Joseph approached Pilate as we saw, taking courage. He asked for the body of Jesus so that he could give it a proper burial. You see, ancient Jews had tremendous respect for the human body. Uh, even as we as Christians ought to have. We are not Gnostics. Matter matters. Jesus took on a human body for the rest of eternity. That should mean something to us. He ascended into heaven in a human body. And the ancient Jews had this respect for the human body, so much so that they were sure to body the, uh, bury the bodies of Jews even in cases where they had been convicted of a crime. This is why, again, to point at Jezebel being eaten by dogs, it was a shocking account. Uh, for the Jews to see, and it marked a curse on her that her body would not be given a proper burial. Normally, in the worst cases of crimes committed, the Romans uh, would leave the bodies of crucified criminals on the cross for vultures to take care of. So instead of just pulling down uh, the cross, uh, the person from the cross, they would leave them there. Uh, the accounts of crucifixions after 
the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 are gruesome. So much so that there seems to be that there was, there was not a, a tree left standing so that all of the different crosses could be erected for the people and Jews that were left in Jerusalem to be crucified and their bodies were left hanging on the crosses. This was not merely for convenience sake because who wants to deal with a dead body on a cross? But their bodies were left on the crosses as a macabre sign like a billboard looming over the people reminding them what happens to those that rebel against Rome. However, as we saw a couple of weeks ago concerning the curse that was inherited by the man that would be hung on a tree, we also saw that part of God's command was that that body would not be left hanging on a tree overnight. Deuteronomy 21, 22-23 if you want to go back and look at that. And so, sometimes the Jews would request for the bodies of crucified Jews so that they could follow their traditions. And at times, the Romans would allow them to take the bodies. But often, the Jews would bury the criminals in a common grave outside the city gates in a place called Gehenna, which Jesus often related to the horrors of hell where there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth. But as further testimony to the goodness of God and His own witness to the person and identity of His Son, even as we looked at last week as darkness fell over the earth and there was an earthquake and the curtain in the temple was torn in two, here again we see God bearing witness to the person and identity of His own Son even as had been since the time of His birth, as Jesus comes into the world, yes, meek and mild, uh, laying like a, like a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, yet heralded by the angels, attested to by celestial signs and disturbances. Even though there was always the presence of humiliation, in the condescension of the God-man come in the flesh, become incarnate, so that He might be uh, God with us, there were also glimmers of glory that bore witness to His true identity all throughout His life. Even in His miracles and the works that He did before the people, But soon, as it was witnessed by only Peter, James, and John in the transfiguration, many more would bear witness to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ after His resurrection. Even so, now in His death, the body of Jesus got a different kind of treatment than what was expected for a crucified criminal, even a Jewish crucified criminal. Some commentators believe that Pilate's willingness to give the body to Joseph and Nicodemus is a further indication that Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent since he allowed Jesus not to be buried with other criminals. Now we do not know much about Joseph of Arimathea except that he was a wealthy disciple of Jesus who sat on the Sanhedrin 
Uh, John 19.38 tells us that he was a disciple in secret. And of course, we know that Nicodemus' devotion to Jesus was likely not public knowledge either, since in John chapter 3, he came to Jesus under cover of darkness at night. Even as we looked critically at Peter some weeks ago for following Jesus at a safe and comfortable distance on the night that he was betrayed, we may reasonably be tempted to look down on Joseph and Nicodemus for their reluctance to identify with Jesus publicly. As I said earlier, where were they when all that was happening with Jesus and the mockery of His trial was taking place? But it is worth understanding that in requesting and taking the body of Jesus for burial, there was a public declaration being made to their allegiance to our Lord. What is important is that they did not stay in hiding, but finally showed their devotion to Christ. Following the burial practices of the Jews, Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped the body of Jesus in linen strips and spices that would mask the smell of decomposing flesh. And though Jesus had suffered much humiliation, the honor shown in His burial marks the beginning of a shift to a more exalted state for our Lord. Remember, everything had quickly been just degrading to this place where even as we read today, they're mocking Jesus. Even paying fake homage to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He is at the lowest of the low. But as He offers up His Spirit to the Lord, what did He say? Father, into, my, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. He breathed His last. He gave up the ghost, so to speak. And He died. From that moment, we see a transition from humiliation towards exaltation. He was laid in a new tomb, a special place reserved in God's providence for Him. I turn your attention once again to a passage we've looked at several times over the last several weeks. Philippians 2, 5-11. through Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did He do? It says He emptied Himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what we refer to in theology as the condescension of Jesus. We often think of the word condescension uh, in negative terms. Don't be so condescending, we might say to someone that we don't like the tone with which they are taking with us. What, what does that mean? It means that we think that they are treating us in a way that is below our station in life. We might think that they're treating us like a child and we're really an adult. They're equal and they should not be so condescending to us. When we talk about the condescension of Jesus, we're not talking about a negative thing as it pertains to us, but rather that He lowered His station. He is the King of all the universe. 
He is the Son of God. He is co-equal with God. But what did Paul say? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He brought himself low for you, for me, for us. That is the condescension of the Lord. That is the humiliation of our Lord. But He who came down also was lifted up. Yes, He was lifted up on a cross. That too was part of His humiliation. His death. But His burial is the hinge between humiliation and exaltation. It's the transition where we then see God come and reveal who Jesus really is. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, Jesus submitted Himself to suffer extreme humiliation, but that was not to be the end of the story. Jesus' burial marks that transition that will end His earthly humiliation and begin His ascent to His former position of honor. And not only honor that He has always had, but an even greater honor as He condescended and paid the price for all humanity and now has earned the name that is above every name. For He is Christ the Lord. R.C. Sproul, speaking of this transition, says that the quality of exaltation is the exact opposite, a strong antithesis to the quality of humiliation. Even as we look at the suffering of Jesus and we see all that He endured in His passion, the, the, the humiliation, the shame, the beating, the physical pain, the, the internal shame, the outward appearance of everything that He did. And as terrible as that is, as grotesque as it is, as we spoke of so many weeks ago, His exaltation is equally in the opposite direction, this place of such high exaltation that the glory of it is as inestimable as the grotesqueness of His suffering for us and in our place. R.C. goes on, In exaltation, dignity is not only restored, but it is crowned with the glory that only God can bestow. And so when we look at the biblical theme of the exaltation of Jesus, we look at the way in which the Father rewards His Son and declares His glory to the whole creation. You see, beloved, Jesus' honorable burial is just the beginning of this turn. As I said, the hinge between humiliation and exaltation because the body of Jesus was not discarded but was preserved. This was the testimony of Scripture from the Psalms, from King David, that God would not let His Holy One see corruption. Peter refers to this in Acts 2, 
8 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost when he quotes David from Psalm 16 and says that God did not abandon Jesus to Hades and He did not let His Holy One see corruption. Isaiah chapter 53 that we also have looked at several times over the course of the last few weeks, but looking at verses 8-10, through we also see the witness of God beforehand as the prophet prophesies about the death and also the burial of Jesus. It says in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people, and they made His grave with the wicked, listen, and with a rich man in His death. Who is that rich man? It's Joseph of Arimathea. This rich man that God had provided uh, for in Jesus' burial. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall, listen, he shall. Who shall? The one who has made an offering. Who is that? It is Jesus. What shall he do? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. What does that mean? He's already been laid with a, in the tomb of a wicked of, of a rich man. Then he shall see, it says, his offspring. What does that speak of except life after death? Finally, and I thought this was an interesting point, and not finally in the sermon, but finally in terms of the transition between humiliation and exaltation. Matthew Henry in his commentary points out that there may be more significance to Jesus' burial in a garden tomb than we might see at first glance. Listen to this. He writes, In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power. And now, in a garden, they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden, Christ began His passion in the Garden of Gethsemane as He sweat great drops of blood. And from a garden, the garden where the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was located, He would rise and begin His exaltation. And when He does resurrect, and Mary comes in to the garden, she mistakes our Lord for a gardener. Or does she? As we consider now all of this, we see the bona fides of Christ's burial as the testimony that He actually died. We see it as the hinge between His humiliation and His exaltation. But we also need to look upon His death ultimately as it shows us His complete rest and trust in and submission to the Father for us and in our place. We have seen how Jesus in His own life and ministry, said 
to his disciples. Hey guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over to the council. They're going to deliver me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be put to death. I'll be buried. And three days later, I'll rise again. Jesus knew what was going to take place. This had been the plan all along. And yet that didn't mean that in His human experience and according to the flesh that He had taken on, that it was going to be easy. Even as we see what He bore in His flesh, the stripes that He bore on His back, the wounds that He took on for us, the great drops of blood that He sweat, the crown of thorns upon His head, the whip upon His back, the nails in His hands and His feet, the suffering that He endured while He lived dying on the cross. So much so that as we saw last week, He would cry out to God, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Such that He not only endured human shame and pain, but endured drinking the cup of God's wrath toward sin. And yet, he did not curse God. He did not heed Job's wife's advice that in the midst of his suffering, he should do what we all are so prone to do or be tempted to do. We should just curse God and die and be done with it. Instead, he says what? My God. My God. Instead, he says what? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This shows us the complete rest and trust in and submission to the Father that Jesus had. And hear me. Even that was for you and in your place. I'll ask you, how often do you say, God, I, I submit myself to you? Or I'm, I'm laying this at your feet. That's kind of a phrase that we use in the church sometimes. God, I'm laying this at your feet. Only to kind of come back and Pick it up again five minutes later. Bitterness, hurt, unforgiveness, things that, pet sins that we are so accustomed to having in our lives that laying them down makes us not feel like ourselves anymore sometimes. And what does that show? It shows a lack of confidence. In the Lord shows a lack of trust. Hear me, I am with you in that. That's why we must pray with the Father in Mark 9 so often. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Why? Because it's there. I have moments of doubt and unbelief. Not, not ultimately, not that I've stopped believing in God, just that I've fallen to the temptation to not believe that He actually can take care of this for me. 
is really what's going on. It's the same sin from the garden. Believing or failing to believe God's goodness for me. And so how often have we submitted ourselves or laid this or that at the feet of Jesus only to pick it up again five minutes later? What do we need? We need, even in this, we need an alien righteousness. We need a vicarious submission to God because we are unable ultimately or perfectly to submit to God completely. We needed Jesus to come to that place of complete rest and submission to the Father for us and in our place. A place that few had ever been. But I'm reminded of two. Adam, when God put him to sleep so that he could take his rib and fashion Eve, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and give her to him as a work mate, a helpmate, companion, for it was not good that man should be alone. But there was another time. Another time when God required a sacrifice. And He had made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham prepared the sacrifice. And in a covenant sacrifice, an animal was to be cut in two. And the pieces of that animal to be spread apart. And the person who was receiving the greatest benefit in that covenant who was pledging fealty to the one who was going to provide at greatest risk protection or peace or what have you. The one who was receiving the greatest benefit, who was at the most disadvantage, would walk through the pieces of that torn animal saying and signifying that if I fail to keep my end of the bargain to serve you, O great and mighty whoever, then may it be done to me as has been done to this animal. In other words, I am pledging my life that if I fail to carry this out, let me die as a sacrifice for my sin, my failure to meet the mark. In the case of Abraham, as he prepares this sacrifice and the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that through him he was going to bless all the peoples of the earth. Abraham prepares the sacrifice. He does everything that's required. He cuts the animal in half. He spreads it apart. And before Abraham can walk through the pieces of the animal, thereby saying, if I fail to keep my end of the bargain, let it happen to me according as it has to this animal that I may pay the price for my sin. God puts Abram to sleep. 
And he's in this hazy kind of sleep where he cannot move, but he is bearing witness to the things that are taking place. And Abram witnesses the Spirit of God as two smoking pots traveling through the pieces of the animal. Signifying what? Abram, if you fail to keep your end of the bargain, God is saying, then let it be done to me as has been done to this animal. God is saying, who is at no disadvantage at all, who had no fealty to pledge to Abraham for anything. He says, Abram, if you fail, I will pay the price for your sin. And so he did in the person and the work of Jesus for us and in our place. Praise God that that work was so complete that at the moment of his greatest need, Jesus did not fail to offer himself at complete rest complete trust, complete submission to the Father for us and in our place. A complete and perfect rest and peace. Buried for us. Hear me. So that even our burial can be temporary as we await the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. Looking back at Heidelberg Catechism, the very next question, question 42. It says, since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? The answer, our death is not a satisfaction for our sin, but only a dying to sin and an entering into eternal life. Amen? Praise God. As we look today at Christ's burial, as we see how it testifies to us of His actual death, we are encouraged to take heart, to be confident that because Jesus really died, that His payment for our sin really counts. As we look at his burial as the transition between humiliation and exaltation, we can allow ourselves, ourselves, even as we have over these last three weeks, been in a sort of extended funeral service as we've looked at the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus, we can begin to turn our eyes towards Sunday as the old preacher uh, so aptly said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We can allow our hearts to begin to look forward with joy and anticipation because even as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, so we like Him who are found to be in Him by faith will also be resurrected from the dead. Not so that we may die again, but like Him raised 
incorruptible and eternal. And lastly, we can be encouraged that even in our times of failure to truly trust in and rest and submit to God completely, that like everything else in our life where we have needed the person and work of Christ, His alien righteousness for us. You understand what I mean by alien. That it didn't belong to us. It's not my righteousness that I did and earned. It's His righteousness. It's alien to me. And it's been granted to me by this great exchange of God. That I needed Jesus to be at perfect peace and rest and trust and submission to the Father for me and in my place. So do you. Lastly, if we look just simply at Joseph of Arimathea's example, we see him awaiting the kingdom of God. How confident do you need to be in the kingdom of God to allow another man to be buried in your tomb that you're going to need in just a few years? Could it be that Joseph had heard what Jesus had said? And he knew that he wasn't going to need the tomb for very long. Yet he was empowered by the Spirit's boldness. And even if he believed without seeing, he employed his gifts to the glory of God. And we are encouraged. We can often mistakenly believe that Christ is just for the poor. But the rich need Jesus too. And God can use the rich just as well as the poor. Yes, it seems that it is as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God as for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. But beloved, with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged. Though it is a sin to hide our allegiance to Christ, it is not an unforgivable sin. I pray that, God, we would com confess to You and repent of being ashamed or afraid of our identification with Christ. That we would Find a way, God, to publicly declare that we belong to Jesus and are His followers, His disciples. That if we have been ashamed of Jesus, let us repent today and ask the Lord to give us courage to be known as the disciples of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, God, I pray that our hearts today would be comforted by the burial of Jesus that we would know because of it that our sins have truly been paid for. That our hearts could begin to rejoice because though humiliation was indeed suffered by our Savior, exaltation is coming. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would likewise also be comforted to know 
that even as we continually, week after week, confess and repent of our sins, and yet continually, week after week, have to continue to confess and repent of our sins because at some level, in some way, we still are failing in each and every area to believe that God, You are enough for us. Jesus, You are enough for us. I pray that we would receive the grace today of knowing that even in our failure to rest and submit to the Father, that Jesus rested and submitted to the Father for us and in our place. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be filled with such gratitude that it would fuel us to action and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion. May we all feed on Christ in our hearts by faith today. Amen.